Well, good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor. So good to have you guys with us today. A big welcome to everyone joining us online. We had like a record attendance at our first service for online. I guess a lot of folks rolled over, looked at the rain, and rolled back in and said, Pajama Church today. So welcome to Pajama Church. We're honored to have you with us in worship this morning. Everybody in here is feeling pretty good right now. They're like, I wore pants church today. I'm at pants church. Welcome to pants church. I got a couple things to share with you at pants church this morning and pajama church. Uh, we, we, uh, we, when you came in through the doors this morning, you were handed a, a program and inside that's a little information about us and who we are. And then uh, you'll find a connect card. If it's your first time joining us this morning, let me tell you, welcome. Well, we are so honored to have you here today. I, I hope you know that at the gathering, this is a place where you can find a home, where you can be in relationship with people who want to walk a simple pathway that you might know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. Um, if it's your first time here today, we'd love just to say thanks for coming and to let you know a little bit about who we are. So if you fill out a little info on that Connect card, we'll reach out and just say thanks for coming. We, we give you a hassle-free guarantee. We won't spam you or show up at your house. Uh, we just want to say thanks for being here. So that's in there, and, and uh, we'll tell you when, when where to, to take those after uh, in a little while. Uh, I want to let you know that right now, uh, Growth Track Step 2 is happening, and so if you missed the announcement last couple weeks, Growth Track is now taking place at 11 a.m. during second service. Uh, growth Track is our, is our little way of helping you discover your purpose. You know, we really believe in next steps here, and Growth Track is a next step when you're ready to know more about the life of the church and to get involved and find out how God's created you to serve. And so uh, next week we start Growth Track Step 1 again. If you have not been through it, we encourage you to come join us at Growth Track at 11 a.m. next week right outside these doors. If you go to our information center, they'll walk you to it so you don't have to go searching for it. Well, next week is Easter Sunday. And we are so excited for Easter Sunday. It, it is the biggest celebration of the year for us. It, it, it is just the kind of the, the pinnacle of everything we believe in and everything that we are um, excited for. And so, uh, man, we are going to do it big next week. We are going to put every ounce of creativity that we have into worshiping and celebrating our King and our resurrected Savior. And so we want to make sure that you are here for that next week. And I would encourage you to bring somebody with you. You've got an uh, invite card in your program, and then there's more outside at the, at the post. That, that There's like a board, I forget what it says, but there's a thing with lots of invite cards. You can grab some more. I, should, I meant to read it. Rail's like, come on, just move on from that post. It's like a board. It's, uh, anyways... Uh, there's car. If you go to the info center, they'll tell you more about it. They'll describe it in better description for you. Grab an invite card, and I would encourage you, listen, the people in your life who you know are in desperate need of community, who are in desperate need of purpose, answers, who need freedom, who need everything that can be found here, um, they, they are never going to be more likely to say yes to an invitation to church than on Easter Sunday. Statistics tell us that that is the, the, the one day out of the year that most people will respond positively to your invitation. Now's the time. Grab that invite card and bring somebody with you next week. You can hand them out to friends, family, neighbors. You can give them to your grocery store clerks. Let's just get the word out as best we can 
because we believe that Jesus is going to show up next Sunday, that there's going to be a move of God, and, and we want you to be a part of it. And so um, next Sunday, we are also doing baptisms. Man, we're excited about baptisms. If you've never been baptized, baptism is your next step. If you've given your life to Jesus recently in the last couple of weeks, four people entered into a new relationship with Jesus last Sunday. Come on, somebody. If that's you, or if you gave your life to Jesus in recent months, or even years and years ago, but you've never gone forward with the next step of believer's baptism, man, we would love the opportunity to take that next step with you. It is one of the things, the few things that Jesus actually commands us to do as a next step. It just lets the world know that we are his, that we are made new in him. We, we have been made new in him. And so uh, if you would like to be baptized, uh, we've already got five or six people signed up. Come on, there's more room. You can go onto that link behind me and, and sign up now. We'll give you all the information you need so that you'll be ready next Sunday uh, to take a dunk in the holy hot tub. All right, well, I want to get into it this morning. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Now, if, you, if, if church is new to you, you didn't grow up around it. Uh, if you grew up in the traditional church, you might have been wondering where our palm fronds were this morning, why we weren't laying them down. Uh, th this is the when we celebrate the Sunday that Jesus entered into Jerusalem uh, and the beginning of what we call the Passion Week, the week that would lead to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This Sunday represents the beginning of the Passover festival in Jewish tradition. And at the beginning of Passover, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was greeted as a king. Jesus had just recently resurrected Lazarus to life in the months prior, and so word of that had spread all around the region. They had heard about his healing, about the teachings, and he was starting to draw crowds in the thousands and thousands that would come to hear him teach. And as he came to Jerusalem, word spread that he was coming. The people all greeted him as a great prophet or as a king coming into the city. They took the palm fronds. And they waved them around shouting Hosanna and then laid them out as a carpet at his feet as he entered into the city. But those same people who were greeting him as a king coming in on Palm Sunday would turn on him and be shouting crucify him just a few days later. Next week as we celebrate Easter, we'll be talking about that story through two different perspectives that I believe really relate to who we are. And uh, really, I believe that these two perspectives are us in the story. And so I can't wait to share that with you. But today, I want to talk about what happened before the trial of Jesus. What, what happened during that week. Today, we're continuing our series, Love Like Jesus. And I've titled our message today, Serve like Jesus, serve like Jesus. As we get up to Easter Sunday, I wanted to take a look at how we can love the way that Jesus loves. And if we're going to talk about how we love the way Jesus loves, we're going to have to talk about serving the way Jesus served. Because the way that Jesus expressed his love to us most often during his time on earth was through serving. And the way that he called his followers to express their love for the world around them was through serving. So we just cannot talk about the love of Jesus without talking about the amazing way that he served the people he encountered and the people that followed him. 
And so uh, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, let me open up by reading from John chapter 13. I want to read you first this story that we're going to be teaching from today, and then we'll get back into it and break it down a little bit. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1, says this, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much just uh, for what you've done for us, God, for calling us uh, to love and serve in a way that is hard for us to even understand. Uh, Lord, help us to understand this morning, God. Give us eyes to see the way that you've served, that we might follow you, Lord, that we might follow you better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I was in the Coast Guard for a few years. Many of you know I like to tell sea stories. Uh, sea stories are like fishing stories. They're all big, and we all wonder whether or not they really happened. And so I want to share a sea story with you. I, I was a, a bit of a troublemaker at my early years in the Coast Guard. I was always getting into trouble uh, and doing things that were mischievous, that would land me in a big old pool of, of mess. And uh, one such occasion... Uh, was when I was cooking for the crew. Now, I, I was a, a petty officer on the ship. If you don't know much about military rankings, I was an E-5 petty officer, which meant that I had a few people who were ranked beneath me. I had a specific job to do on the ship. I was a gunner's mate, so my, my role when we were underway was to take care of all the guns and, and make sure that they were all cleaned and working properly to fix them, track them, all that kind of stuff. So I had a specific job to do. Now, there was a group of people on the ship called non-rates. Non-rates were the E3s, E2s, and E1s, and these were the guys that were the lowest of the low. They had no real job to do, so we gave them all the worst jobs that there were. They were constant, they, we were sailing this ship out in the ocean, and they would be painting the outside of it. Doesn't that seem silly to you? That's the kind of job the non-rates had. The worst one was the mess cook. The mess cook was the worst position you could get on the boat. Now, the mess cook didn't cook anything. His job was to clean up all the messes. He, he would go into this, this little room and wash all the dishes for 84 sloppy men. It was a horrible job. So, uh, naturally, I found myself as mess cook at one point. You see, what happened was I was in the actual kitchen. It was a morale day. I was cooking wings for the crew. Just, you know, sometimes they would let people do that just to serve people and, and, and have fun with it. And I decided to make the hottest wings anybody had ever had. And so I, I went down. I was in charge of the law enforcement equipment. And so I went down to the LE locker and got some OC pepper spray. This is military-grade pepper spray. And what I did was I emptied the entire can into some Frank's Red Hot sauce and uh, put a little butter in there, cut up some peppers, boiled it all down nice and good, and I tossed a whole bunch of wings in it, served it up to the entire crew. I would say about of the 84 people on board, probably about 75 of them ate my famous chicken wings. 
And let me tell you something, they were hot. People's throats were closing up. It was awesome. There were guys getting oxygen over there in the medical clinic because they couldn't breathe anymore. They were like, what do you do to these wings, man? They're awesome. And I was like, it's a secret. You'll never know. I, uh, I didn't know that there are some side effects to ingesting pepper spray. And it all happens right here, okay? You get what I'm saying? I'm not going to get too descript, but I'll tell you this much. 84 men on the Cutter Venturous, 12 toilets, okay? We were in trouble. There, there was trouble at sea that day. And so I didn't eat any because I got common sense. I'm not going to eat chicken wings bathed in pepper spray. That's ridiculous. And so I'm fine, and I'm sitting up there, and everybody's just like leaning over the side of the ship. It's nasty. And all of a sudden, my name comes over the intercom. Now, Petty Officer Redwine to the captain's cabin. And I thought, uh-oh, this ain't good. Turns out the captain had enjoyed some of my chicken wings, and I walked into his, uh, his room there on the ship, and he is just disheveled, you know, he's always looking regal with his buttons all done, a tie on and everything, but not today. Today he's in a t-shirt, his hair's a mess, and he's bent over and all pale, and he said, red wine, what did you do to those chicken wings? And I said, ah, uh, I put pepper spray on them, captain, they were real spicy. So next thing I know, I'm in charge of cleaning all the dishes on the ship, and uh, this is a bad job to do. And, and what I felt in my core was that this was beneath me. Like, I shouldn't be washing dishes. I'm a gunner's man. I'm a petty officer second class in the United States Coast Guard. I'm a gunner's mate. I need to be doing cool stuff with guns, you know. I'm usually down in the armory with, like, two big Rambo guns like this all the time. Like, get some. Like, that's me. But, but instead, I'm over here washing dishes. Here's the worst part. Most of the dishes, they go in this big commercial dishwasher. So all I had to really do was put these things in this big rack and then load it up and then put the arm down and it was kind of cool steam would come out that was kind of fun but the worst part was the officers dishes we had 20 plates that were porcelain china and they had to be washed by hand can you imagine and so one night I'd been doing it for a few nights and I was getting pretty fed up one night it was spaghetti night on the boat okay just the biggest mess on these plates you ever saw some of these guys sat and chatted for a while after dinner so the spaghetti sauce crusted onto the plate the nerve you know and so they brought me these plates and I was sitting there 20 plates to wash you guys are complaining about washing your two kids plates after dinner I got 20 guys plates that I'm supposed to wash and so I decided I'm not going to wash these plates so what I did was I walked around while everybody was still hanging around, schmoozed a little bit, distracted them, you know. And then after the last person had left, I double-checked. I made sure I was all alone. And I took that big rack full of those porcelain china plates, and I marched over to the side of the ship, and I released them to their destiny. Goodbye to the depths of the sea. You go, Ariel was so excited that day. Got some more dingle hoppers floating to the bottom of the sea. Now listen... <laughs> now listen, I know what's going on right now. I know that some of you out there are judging me right now. You're thinking about the sea turtles. I get it. And, and I know you are. But we all have things that we don't do or won't do because we think it is somebody else's responsibility. Mm. Or we think we're too good for it. Or maybe because we just don't want to. Now, maybe for you, it's in your relationships. You refuse to do the other person's laundry because when they do theirs, they never do any of yours. So why would you? Or maybe you're serving at church one morning and you walk by a piece of trash and don't pick it up because you signed up to serve on the production team and that must be somebody else's responsibility. 
Or you're serving in the nursery and you're holding a baby and the baby poops and you pretend you didn't smell it. But we all know you smelled it. Or maybe you refuse to go out of your way for your neighbors because you know your neighbors would never go out of their way for you. And we may not realize it, but this is not just our mindset when it comes to serving. It's the way we treat love. See, what we want is a love that brings reciprocation. But Jesus showed us another way. Something new, something different, something radical and irrational. And the way that he's called us to love is a way that does not come natural to us. He's called us to love in a way that is beyond reciprocation. He's called us to love in a way that is selfless. John, his beloved friend and disciple, remembered this very well about Jesus. He spent his entire life encouraging people that the love of Jesus was extreme, that there was a way you felt when you were in the presence of Jesus, like you were the only one in the room, like you were the most important person he had ever met. John would try to help people understand that Jesus loved you in a way you didn't deserve to be loved, that from the get-go, he treated you in a special way. And when he sat down to write his gospel, I believe that he, he wrote down some things that nobody else wrote out of a desire to help us understand what it was like to just be in the room with Jesus. You see, when John wrote his gospel, it had been a couple decades uh, that all three of the others had been written. So they were in circulation. He was probably teaching from them. He was a pastor in a few different cities. And John probably read from the other gospels. But the other gospels, they told the life story of Jesus. And I think John sat down and said, I don't need to do that. That's been done well. I think what I want to do is help people understand what it was like to be with Jesus. And so his gospel is special. And in John chapter 13, he starts to tell us the story of the Last Supper in a way that is different from the way everybody else told it. Now let me give you a recap of the week here. Uh, on Sunday, the day we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in like a king. He came in and, and everybody shouted, Hosanna. They praised his name. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Glory in the highest. And it was the entry that he deserved. But on Monday, he went into the temple and he saw that the house of God had been turned into a marketplace. And so Jesus cleansed the temple is what we call it. Maybe you've heard the story where Jesus made whips and started driving people out of that place, flipping tables and really demonstrated the only anger we really see of him in the scripture was an anger over the desecration of the temple of God. And so Jesus cleansed the temple and he made the statement on Monday that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. It was foreshadowing of what was coming. He knew. He knew why he was there. On Tuesday, Jesus got in this great big fight with all of the religious leaders and the priests and the Pharisees. And it was such a, it was such a tense moment that after that, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the priests, they decided once and for all that they had to take care of this Jesus problem. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. It's a bit of a mystery. I like to think Jesus took a chill day and went and saw a movie. On Thursday, it was the Passover feast. And so Thursday, they got together probably fairly early in the day for this great big feast that they would celebrate every year at this festival of Passover, the Seder. And the Seder was a, an important meal because it represented the covenant of God. If you, if you, the, the, the Jewish 
people still celebrate it today. If you have any friends uh, who follow Judaism, they're probably preparing this feast right now to, to, to get ready for this week. You see, at the Passover feast, they would break down the promises of God given to the people of God in the early parts of Exodus. And they would celebrate it, and it represented the covenant that God made with them to rescue them out of slavery and to build relationship with them. Jesus reclaimed it as something new. You see, in the story of Passover, the reason they were in Jerusalem on this specific week uh, is the story of when the last plague came upon Egypt. If you don't know, if the Bible is new to you, the Israelites, thousands of years prior, were in slavery for hundreds of years. A man named Moses came to deliver them from slavery. He was sent by God, and he went up to Pharaoh and asked Pharaoh 12 different times to release the people of God, and each time would come another plague. Well, the final plague that came was the worst of them all. Uh, the angel of death came into this nation of Egypt and took all the firstborn children unless this lamb was sacrificed and the blood of that lamb was painted over the doorway to represent it was one of the Hebrew children. And if the blood of the lamb was over this doorway, the people inside were spared from the fate that they deserved. You see, Jesus came and reclaimed this moment. Jesus was coming to be that lamb for us. He knew as he sat at this Passover feast that he was about to paint his blood over the hearts of everyone who would believe in him, who would accept him, that the death that we deserved, that we had earned, was about to be taken away from us. We were about to be spared of. And Jesus reclaimed the promises that were in that meal as his promises to us. And so it was a big, big, big deal. John spent three chapters telling us about the Last Supper and the conversations that they had there. It wasn't just Jesus breaking bread and this time to make sure that all the things he'd been trying to teach his followers for the last three years was sunk into their hearts. Let's look at verse 1 as we break down this passage today. It says, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. I can picture John sitting down to tell this story with tears in his eyes as he wrote this verse. Because John's thinking about everything that he's, he's starting, the ball that he's rolling off right now in this verse. He's thinking about the story he's about to tell. And he says that not only did Jesus love us well, he loved us to the very last moments. He loved us to the very end. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that this was it. And so he was going to make it count. Jesus knew the hour had come. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved us to the end. Matthew's gospel tells us that at this dinner, uh, probably before what's about to happen, the disciples had been arguing about their prominence and position in the kingdom Jesus was going to establish. Many of them, even to that moment, still believed that Jesus was going to establish a literal kingdom on earth, that what he would do was unseat the Romans and set up a new kingdom of Israel right there. 
in, in Jerusalem. They believed that that time was coming soon. And so they were arguing about who would be the most important in the kingdom of Jesus. And yet over and over during his ministry, Jesus had told them, no, it's not, a, you guys have got it all wrong. It's not about who's the, the most important among you. It's about who's the least. Whoever wants to be first has got to be last. He keeps telling them this, but it's like they're not getting it. And so they're arguing about this. And Jesus is lounged there at the table. And I think he was looking around the room and he saw prideful hearts and dirty feet. And I think he just thought, I can change both of those things right now. I can do something about this. I can shift it. Verse 2. It says, In the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. John wrote that for a reason. He's about to talk about Jesus washing feet. He needs to make sure we know that two of those feet belonged to Judas Iscariot, and that Judas Iscariot had already decided in his heart to betray Jesus. And so sitting there at this dinner, listening to everything that Jesus would say, was the same man who would betray him to his death. Judas, sitting there. Verse 11 of this chapter tells us that Jesus knew the moment they walked in that room what Judas had already done and what he was preparing to do. And so you've got to understand the significance here of what's about to happen, that Judas was in the room. Verse 3 says... Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now John is establishing the authority of Jesus. He wants to make sure we know before he tells us what Jesus did, exactly who Jesus is. All power on heaven and earth has been given to him. This is not some prophet, not some rabbi, not some teacher. This is the son of the living God. Wrap your mind around that. He is above all things. It says that he was there when the earth was created. That he is the ruler of all things. He is the son of the living God. All authority on the earth, in the earth, and under the earth has been given to him. And you've got to remember that. He knows that. He's aware of who he is. He's aware of what he's about to do as he makes this decision and looks around and sees these dirty feet. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you may or may not know, but having your feet washed at a dinner was a very normal thing in this culture. It was a courtesy that the owner of the home would provide for you when you would come over to eat. There were no chairs in ancient Israel. There was, no, there was a table that was very low to the ground, and everybody would sit down on your bottom on the floor and lounge there. Guess what that means? It means your feet are close to the food. Guess what? They didn't have Nikes or hiking boots back then. They had dirt streets and chacos. Now, if you've ever worn your chacos out in the dirt, you know that your feet get dirty in a very special way. Like it is a unique kind of dirtiness. You go, especially if it's dusty out. We haven't had, it's been so much rain that it hasn't been dusty in a while. But I lived in California during the worst drought California had ever had. And anytime you wore sandals, at the end of the day, your feet had dirt buried into the pores. My bones were dirty at the end of the day. And I stopped wearing sandals during that season. It was too gross. And I hate feet anyways. 
And I don't think anybody, I don't think Jesus likes feet. I think God made feet because he knew we needed to walk. I don't think he made feet because he says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I don't think he meant it like that, though, because feet are never beautiful. They're disgusting. I hate them so, so much. I hate feet. I tell my wife, I think she is gorgeous from the top of her head down to her ankles. I love her so, so much. My feet are disgusting. They're terrible. I have awful feet. They're flat and narrow. They look like little scoops pedals and 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 I, and I and I always forget to cut my toenails because I never take my socks off because I hate feet so much and so I, I had my toenails off the other day and my dad was like grossed out by my toenails and I was like listen I clip my nails twice a year just like the rest of you okay I forget about them they're gross Rael if she's mad at me at night and we get in bed together to get at me she'll get her feet up underneath my legs and I'm just like ah gross get stop it chop I chop them with my hand I'm like don't touch me with those feet. <laughs> and Jesus looked at the dirtiest feet. I mean, just the filthiest, dirtiest feet. They've been walking all day. And they're sitting there at the dinner table. And he stands up. And he walks over. And he takes the towel off. You know, the, this was a, not a job for a teacher. It was never a job for a guest there's never something that your rabbi would do for you. There was a culture of rabbis and disciples in the time of Jesus. He wasn't the only one. He was just the only God. And there was this culture, and the rabbi was served by his followers. He never had to get his own food. He never had to do his own things. His disciples would do all of that for him. It was different with Jesus. In the custom in those days, you'd walk into somebody's home and the lowest slave in the house, it was beneath their servants. This was a way of them showing off that they were wealthy enough to have a slave and the slave, the lowest one, not even like the slaves that had been around a while, the lowest ones in the house would take off their outer garment and wrap a towel around their waist and get the wash basin and start scrubbing these dirty, disgusting, filthy it was such a low thing. It was beneath everyone at that table. But Jesus said, it's time for your prideful heart to die. Let me show you what I'm willing to do for you. And he got up and he started washing feet. And I wonder if when John was writing down this story, if he was, as he was thinking back on it, you know, I mean, it just, they hadn't talked about it. The, the disciples, maybe they just were like, let's never talk about that again. That was embarrassing. We let Jesus wash our feet. Let's not tell, and John was like, people need to know about this. And I wonder if when he was writing down this story, he would specifically think back to the moment when Jesus would get to the feet of Judas Iscariot. You know, it, it talks about it in verse 11 that he was there, that they talked about he would be there, and Jesus knew he was the, the one that would betray him. And I just wonder what it was like. When Jesus was washing his feet, here's what I know about Jesus. I know that he washed Judas's feet with as much care and compassion and intention as he did when he washed John's feet or Peter's feet or Matthew's feet or any of the other, other guys at the table that he probably looked him in his eyes. And Judas was uncomfortable and shifty. You know that feeling when you just know that somebody has caught you in something, even though it's not been said out loud yet. I mean, I just know his, everything in him must have been on fire. But Jesus just sat there. And he washed the feet of his betrayer. What a scene. And the disciples are all freaking out. 
Peter's arguing, saying, no, let me wash. No, I'll wash your feet, Jesus. You don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, I tell you, if you don't let me wash your feet right now, you could have no part in my kingdom. And so then Peter's like, well, then give me a bath, Jesus. He takes his towel off. He's like, I'm ready. Wash my whole body. And Peter, Jesus is like, that's disgusting, Peter. You don't need a whole bath. You already had one. I'm just washing feet. Please just let the moment happen. Stop ruining everything. Jesus is washing his feet. He's just taking care of it. And you just got to know that this is who Jesus is. This is his character. This is his nature. This is what he sees when he looks at a room and he sees prideful hearts and he sees dirty feet and he thinks, I can change it. I can do something about it. He sees the job nobody else would do and he thinks, this one is mine. I can take care of it. you got to know this is who Jesus is. And if you follow Jesus, this is who you are too. This is who we've been called to be. This is the way we've been called to serve. Look at verse 12. It says, When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent them. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you do them. Now, you've got to understand that what Jesus was saying to his disciples here, this was not his manifesto for a world of cleaner feet. He wasn't telling them to just literally go out and wash everybody's feet. No, he was trying to help them understand that there was no job beneath them. That there was no way that they could serve the people around them, the world around them, that would be too low for them. He was trying to help them understand that when you show people that you love them, you show them the way that I've shown you that I love you. Just sat there and washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. You know what I think is interesting about this story? As I think on it, and, I, and I, I mean, I just have thought about it a lot. It's one of my favorite pictures of Jesus because it's so remarkable. It's so staggering that the king of kings would do just the, he just thought of the lowest position he could find. And he got down and washed their feet and did it. And sometimes I think I'm too good to wash dishes. My king washed my feet. And I think about this in the terms of who he's, his feet he's washing and who I relate to. And I think we all tend to like look, maybe we don't, I do. I tend to look at the disciples and put myself in the shoes of one or the other. Which one do I relate to the most? Am I like Peter? Am I like John? Am I like Matthew? But I think in this story, we're the most like Judas. We're the most like Judas. That Jesus would serve us when we're the ones that put him on the cross. That it was my sin. It was my shame. It was my mistakes. It was everything that I would do that would get him on that cross for my forgiveness. And he would serve me in the same way that he served Jesus. We've been called to serve like Jesus. Two takeaways today. Just it. That's it. First, we've been called to serve like Jesus. 
the King of kings, with all authority over the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, knelt down and washed the feet of his followers because he needed us to understand that we were going to need to love the world the way that he loved the world so they would be able to understand who Jesus is. If we are going to represent him, if we are going to follow him, we are going to have to serve like him. And he said to them, love each other the way that I have loved you. And this was the man who was on his way to a cross to give himself for their sins. This was the man who would get down on his knees and grab their dirty feet and rub them until all the filth was gone. He would clean them. We're called to serve like Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are called to serve others regardless of who we are. It just does not matter. We're called to serve. Even the things that we think we might be above or too good for, we are called to serve. If you can see it, if it's in front of you, if there is an opportunity, we have to take it. We are called to serve others. Jesus said, as I've done for you, go and do for others. So what does that look like for you? Where are your feet? Where, where is the thing that he's placing in front of you that almost feels like it's too low for you. I think first it means that we look for ways to serve the people around us in small ways all the time. That we shift the way we look at the world. Not just here at church or, or people that come into our home. But when we are out going about our lives. Here's what I tend to do when I go about my life. I, I, I am a kind of a head down, get it done kind of person. I, I, I t- my wife always makes fun of me. She doesn't make, I shouldn't start a sentence like that. She teases me a little bit because one of the things that I tend to do is forget there's other people in the world. If I'm like folk, like walking through a crowd and I just, I, 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 will, I will draw into myself and I do not see anyone else. And I'll turn to her and say things that are inappropriate <laughs> or rude. And she'll be like, John Mark, other people can hear you. And I'm like, no, they can't. Not if I don't see them. If I'm not looking at them, they can't hear me. And this is, it's just kind of, and so one time I was at Aldi. Aldi is weird. It's a strange place. We can agree on that. You can go in there, though, and get enough food to feed 10 people for $2.75. And so we go there, you know, but it's just a strange place. It, it has a weird culture about it. And so I, I'm in Aldi, and she had asked me to pick up something for dinner that night on my way home from work. So I'd stopped in. I was trying to be quick. I'd, like, grabbed one thing, and I was leaving there. And as I'm leaving, there was this elderly woman. And she had, uh, you, you know, she had taken her buggy. Aldi has a quarter system. If you've never been, you put your quarter in the buggy, and then if you want that quarter back, you've got to return the buggy, and it pops it out. It's, it's, it's hard to describe if you haven't seen it. Go check it out sometime. And so she's, the, she's, she's got three boxes of food, but she is determined to get that quarter back right now, okay? That quarter is going to a grandkid later. She's going to bless them with it. She's not going to lose her quarter. And so she goes, and before she takes her food to the car, she puts the buggy in and gets her quarter back and is trying to carry three boxes of food to her car. And I see this out of a corner of my eyes. My first thought is, <laughs> Wow, she's struggling. Got to go. You know, got, got to go. I'm like, man, she should have taken the buggy to the car. That would have been the better way to do that. Got to go. You know, and that's just kind of, that's how we think. We get in our zone. We're doing our thing. And we don't see the people around us. We don't see the dirty feet. We don't see the needs. We just move forward in the life that we're living, doing the thing that we're doing, and trying to just try to go our own way. Jesus has called us to do something different. 
He's asked us to stop, to look, to see the people around us, to find the ones that need to be served and to help. And so I felt the spirit move inside of me and I thought, man, I think I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to talk to somebody. This is going to be hard. And so I go over there and I just asked her, I said, hey, it looks like you've got a lot there. Can I help you carry this to your car? Could I help you out to your car today? And she looked at me and she said, oh, are you the grocery boy? And I said, today I am. To, yes, ma'am, today I am. I would be honored. We, we don't accept tips, you know, just hand me your, let's just, and I carried those boxes to her car for him. It took me two minutes. It was the easiest thing in the world, but it made a difference to her. And I just wonder, as we go through our day, how many times we have the opportunity to make a big impact in small ways, to serve people, to go out of our way, to put our needs second and others First, if we could just train ourselves to look and see, I wonder, you know, is, is it your neighbor who struggles to get out there? The single mom who has a hard time getting that grass cut? Is it, is it just walking over there and saying, hey, I'm, I was cutting my yard. I was wondering, would it be all right if I cut yours as well today? You know, are you the yard boy? Today I am. Today I am. I wonder what, what other ways we could step out of our comfort zone and serve the people around us? How can we make ourselves more and more like Jesus? And I think what happens is, the more we do these little things, we make these small changes, these efforts to see people, to really see people. You know what was different about Jesus? Jesus would walk into the world, and he saw people. I mean, I'm just, I'm learning that skill, because I just don't a lot of times. I see what I want, what I need. But Jesus saw people. There was a man named Bartimaeus. He was blind. And there was this big crowd moving through a city, and, and Jesus was at the center of it. And his disciples were acting like bouncers, pushing people away. And Bartimaeus was over in the corner, and nobody had seen him in his entire life. He was born blind. He, he just didn't know what it was like to be seen. And he was crying out for help. Help me, help me. And the disciples said, not now. Jesus is busy. He's got somewhere to go. And Jesus stopped the whole crowd of people and said, bring him here to me. He looked at Bartimaeus and he said, what can I do for you? What, do you? what do you want me to do for you? I mean, it was blind. It was clear. But I just wonder if anybody had ever asked Bartimaeus that in his entire life. What do you want me to do for you today? And he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, then you can see. And his eyes were opened. Jesus just saw people. He saw people. And I wonder what would happen if we just started to see people the way that he did. Little touches, little changes. I think the second way that we can serve like Jesus is relationally, in our lives, in our relationships. Uh, I think we've got to look into our own lives. How often in our relationships do we say in our heads, or maybe out loud to our detriment, when we see that the trash is full, or the laundry is full, or there's dishes in the sink, well, they didn't take care of it, so why should I? How many of us keep a running tally of diapers that we've changed that day in our head so we've got ammunition later if our spouse asks us to change the poopy? I wonder what would happen if we just decided to serve one another selflessly. What would it do to your marriage? What would it do to the relationships in your life? How would it change the lives of your children? What if you became the one who cleaned up that dirty microwave in the break room at work? Listen, we all know that somebody's got to learn when you heat up soup, just put a paper towel over the top of it. It's not hard, and it makes a big impact on the microwave. But what if instead of complaining about it, you just wet that towel, and you wiped out the inside of that microwave, and you served without asking, without, without expecting reciprocation, without seeing anything else? What if you got on the dream team 
And you made a decision that you were going to serve your community, your city, with everything that is inside of you. You were going to direct your purpose into serving. What if you went into our kids' classrooms and that baby pooped and you knew it was going to be a nasty one. And you had already cleaned two poopies in that nursery today. But instead of saying, please someone release me of this demon, you took that baby over there and you wiped it so clean there would not be a single dingle. You know what I'm saying? What if we just served in a way that was unusual? What if we just get in there and we give our heart to it? I mean, instead of saying, hey, that's not my job. What if we said, that one's mine today? I see it. Here's what I think happens when we give ourselves over to this. Slowly, we realize that serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. Serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to follow him everywhere. That means even to the cross. See, he said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. Something inside of you has to die. Maybe it is your pursuit of self. You see, something happens when we're a servant. We've got to consciously make a, ch- a decision to choose others over ourselves, And that is hard. Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in everything, in everything, value others above yourself. Man, what would it look like if we lived that out? If we just learned to die to ourselves and serve others. This is who Jesus is. And we've got to show the world who Jesus is because of what he's done for us. So what if we just started turning this back over to him? Second thing that we need to do is we need to learn to love like Jesus. And this is what it looks like. Just serving in radical ways. Just, just letting ourselves be second. To just constantly put others first. To care for other people. To look for the dirty feet in the room. To try to find the task that nobody wants to do. To step out of our way in little ways for people that we encounter all week long. It's the kind of kindness that Jesus lived in. And if we could learn to love like him, we'd learn to live like him, we'd be more like him, and we would be blessed like him. It says at the end of that, that verse there, it says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do you know that when he uses the word blessing, he's not talking about a boat showing up in your driveway? It's not what he means. It's internal. It's spiritual. It's inside of you. There's a hierarchy of needs in sociology, Abraham Maslow came up with it decades ago. And when he came up with it, uh, he, he said that these needs are the things that motivate everybody. And it kind of works its way up in a pyramid. And the top one is the top motivator for all people. And he said that the top motivator was self-actualization. That we might know who we are. That you just might, that if, if I could just know me, that I would feel fulfilled. But what happened was people got to where we got better at knowing who we are as a culture and people were still unsatisfied. Inside of us, there was something missing, something empty, something, something, some kind of longing. And they added to it in recent years. Now we've got a new hierarchy of needs. This is not Christian sociology. This is sociology. And above self-actualization, they put transcendentalism. The, the desire not only to know who I am, but to know how to use who I am to bless others. And that's what the world calls it. We say that we, we were made to know God, find freedom, discover our purpose, and make a difference. In other words, discover our purpose means to know who you are and why you were created. And then to make a difference means to step out and serve in the way you were created. 
See, I believe something happens when we serve like Jesus, when we live like Jesus, when we love like Jesus, that inside of us we are made whole. That the longing you've had all of your life for blessing, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, that something just clicks. And we think we're going to be losing so much if we just train our eyes to see the needs of others. We think, oh, it'd be so hard to die to myself. It'd be so hard to give up my things for somebody else. It'd be so hard to give up my time for somebody else. But God says, no, I I made you differently than that. The enemy wants you to believe that. What God wants you to know is he created you to feel fulfilled when you serve others. We got to serve like Jesus served. Look at verse 34. Same chapter. Jesus was just, he's just got to let the disciples know so many things in this dinner. Because they're going to leave this dinner and they're going to keep talking on a walk. And as they go on this walk, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, Jesus would pray for you and pray for me, pray for them. And he would ask God, any other way, please God, any other way. Any other way that this can happen. Any way, Father, but not my will. But your will be done. And in that garden, Judas would show up. The same Judas who now has clean feet would show up and he would kiss Jesus. And the soldiers would come and take him away. That Jesus, that one, he said this. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, hours away. Hours away from the cross. As I have loved you, You must love one another. And it's by this that everyone will know you are my disciples. Do you know why the early church grew the way that it did? In a matter of a hundred years, the early church, in a world without phones, internet, cars, any of that, it went from being just 72 people to over a million in a century. Can you imagine? Do you know why it grew the way that it did? Because Jesus said that it's by your love that everyone would know your mind. They loved in ways people had never seen before. They, they served in ways people had never seen before. Did you know it was in the first century, shortly after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, that adoption was created? Did you know that? It, did, it didn't exist. What would happen in, in Roman culture is when you had an orphan or a child that a parent didn't want to raise, they just sent them into the streets. And they would beg or steal and often they would die. Sometimes they were just killed and put away. And what happened was these early Christians, they had been told to love the way that Jesus loved, to care the way that Jesus cared, to see people the way that Jesus saw people. And they they went out into the streets and there were children who were hungry and without a home. And they just said, I see something I can do. I can do that. I can do that. And brought them into their homes. And the Roman government said, you can't keep these children. They're not yours. And they said, well, can we change that? And it was the first culture in the entire world where they invented the, uh, the process to legally adopt a child. Isn't that amazing? Followers of Jesus are called to love in ways that are irrational, that are radical, that don't make sense. And we are called to put others far in front of us. We've got to serve like Jesus serves. This is what it means to follow him. And this is how people know we are his, by the way we love others. Do people know that you follow Jesus by the way that you love? By the way that you serve? Do you see people? A serving is not what we do. A servant is who I am. 
Serving is not what we do. A servant is who I am. When we love people the way Jesus called us to, it drops their guard. It draws them to Jesus. It draws them to him. They they can argue with our theology. They can't argue with our love. That's what attracts people. It's not, it's not, it's not just the, the, the stage. It's not, the, it's not a cool video on Facebook, an ad. It's none of that. No, I think what's going to change our city is going to be something different. It is a community of people who are serving and loving like Jesus. It is attractive. It, it, is, it is unmistakable. We've got to love one another with our actions, not our words. Loving one another means loving other Christians that we disagree with. It means loving family members who've betrayed our trust. It means loving neighbors who've been, who have a punk rock band that rehearses four times a week. <laughs> Bring them some pizza one night. Bless them. Love them. It means serving and loving the ones the world's forgotten. It means stepping out in ways that are uncomfortable and hard for us and training ourselves to do it on, an, on a regular basis. This is what it means to follow Jesus because this is who Jesus is. Love one another as I have loved you. Thursday night. Later that night, he stood on trial. All night long, he was awake being being interviewed by kings and priests and eventually a Roman governor who would give them the opportunity to release Jesus. And that morning, they said, no, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The king of all creation will be led up a, a road to a hill right next to the highway, nailed to a cross with his arms stretched out. This is how much I love you. This one is mine. This one is mine. I will serve you in the, in the way that I, the, the only thing I have left to give is my life and I will serve you with this too. That's who Jesus is. As I have loved you, you must love one another. As I have loved And so, God, we respond, Lord, we respond to you by following you with everything that we are. We love you, Lord. And, Father, because of our love for you and your love for us, we will love others in a way that is hard for us. We will step out of our comfort zones. We will look for people. God, give us your eyes to see the world around us, the people around us. Show us the feet that we get to wash. Show us the people we get to bless, Lord. We are yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.